<laughs> He's come from Australia, by the way. He's not here anymore. So, extremely honored and privileged to have both of you here with us. So, I thought we'd start a bit about Sam, because we've heard a lot about Shamsunda Prabhu, we've heard a lot about the George Harrisons. That's all old news now, you know? So, I wanted to get a bit more into who Sam was. And in, uh, in volume one, it really opens up about your very interesting relationship with drugs and um, you know, how you were not just taking them, but you were caught for, for also dealing them as well. And one thing I never knew was that you were on parole up until you were leaving for London. So the, the police were looking for you. So it seems like a lot of our leaders actually had quite this funny relationship with taking intoxicants. So I wanted to know, when U.S. was a very exotic place in itself, what led you to take a step towards spiritual life? And how did your journey from Sam to Shamasunda begin? Well, uh, first, let me offer my deep gratitude to all of you, to Sundarananda Das, Rasabihari Das, who made Volume 2 possible, and all the other wonderful angels, here at Pandavasena, who always make my visits to the UK so happy and complete. Your blooming vision and your activities, the Krishna conscious youth of this country, are so dear to Srila Prabhupada's heart. And you've taken the call up and in the spirit of chasing rhinos with the Swami and taken it to huge new levels of excitement. So first of all, thank you. Thank you all so much for this. And going back to your question, going back in time, you have to remember this, that our generation, this post-war generation, we were middle-class children in America. We were following uh, the two most extreme displays of violence in history, the two world wars. Our parents had been in these wars and through a major depression. And it seemed to us that these were the results of chasing after money, greed, and politics. So we were born into a, uh, an era, uh, a historical era of great abundance. The war machine of the Second World War had turned over to making consumer goods. And for the first time in history, uh, an entire generation of children had leisure time, spare time. Education, for the first time in history, millions of kids got to go to college and learn higher things like philosophy. Uh, this had never happened in history before. Probably 60-70% of American children in those days got college educations. And communications was brand new. Uh, for the first time in history, we were linked coast to coast, first by radio and then by television, uh, with each other, the children of America. We could see in California or on the West Coast what the children in Philadelphia were what songs they were listening to, what they were dancing to, and it began to link us all in a special way. We didn't want the world that our parents had created. It was too full of violence and depression. 
And there was kind of a dull conformity to it all. Just earn money, save money, earn money, save money, buy goods. Well, millions, a whole generation of young people began to want something more. And we began searching. Where are we going to find the answers to what life is really about? Um, there were books available. We'd be, for the first time, we could buy any kind of book about any subject. Everyone began to read books. Uh, looking for a teacher, a master, show us the way. We, like you mentioned, we try experimented with these psychedelic drugs that show you a different, higher reality. We tried everything, music. The rock and roll generation was born out of our culture, in full bloom. So, in this one neighborhood in San Francisco, called the Haight-Ashbury neighborhood, it was built to house maybe 10,000 people, residents. And suddenly, in the, in the summer of 1967, uh, 100,000 young people came to live in that community, all in the age group, say, 18 to 25. 100,000 kids, all looking at each other, wondering the same thing. Wow, man, where's it, where's it at? Where's the answer to life? Why are we here? And in this perfect window of time stepped Bhaktivedanta Swami. Huh? How perfect is that? Now, the Swami was born in the previous century. He had spent 70 years uh, 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 developing his, his uh, perfecting himself to come to us, uh, getting ready, preparing himself to come to us, 70 years. So the fact that he appeared in this window at that particular moment in time and showed us what a real guru, a real teacher was, was unbelievable. Uh, and uh, he, you know, and his, his glowing face attracted us, his physical aspect, his grace, but when he started uh, answering our questions with perfect answers, there was nothing the Swami didn't know. He knew everything. He captured us uh, right away with the idea that we are seeing and experiencing a perfect person. And you, you can say this was a perfect wave of history, historical. That's true, 50 years ago. But bringing up this past history, very important to now because times are really not so different now. I mean, people have said to me, oh, a lot of people are saying to me lately, all oh, those times were so different then, the history specially made to spread Krishna consciousness in the world, it's not the same today. Well, I beg to differ. I disagree with that. I see, I'm beginning to see now at the present time the same historical wave starting to rise again. The newest generation is born into times much like our times in the 60s. There's war going on all over the world right now. Uh, crazy, greedy politicians are running whole huge countries. Uh, there's racial division still going. But I see the children of today starting to rebel again against this noise and furor, the tattoos and the rap music, 
their parents' heads buried in iPhones and computers. A new wave is coming, children. This I believe deeply. Just like the wave that lifted us 50 years ago. So, Chasing Rhinos, the title of your book, and you were chasing rhinos right from the beginning. Uh, before you even met Prabhupada, your first assignment was to find a temple in San Francisco. I mean, usually, like most of us, our first service would be sweeping a temple room floor or making a salad for prasadam. But your first service to Prabhupada was trying to find a temple in San Francisco. And it was through Prabhupada's... I guess Prabhupada really pressurizes his disciples to really push their boundaries and try to do as much as they could possibly do. But were there any occasions, I'm quite intrigued to find out if there are any occasions where you just felt, Prabhupada, you've got it wrong. There's no way we can do that. <laughs> any, any experiences like that? And how do you navigate around that? Well, the Swami told us two things at the beginning. He said, two things only. You become yourself Krishna conscious and you spread Krishna consciousness. Just those two. And he said, actually, the secret of it's really just one thing. By spreading Krishna consciousness, you become Krishna conscious. We thought, wow, what a simple formula that is. And he showed us, mm, he, we didn't have any copies of it, but he, he told us about the Bhagavad Gita, where God himself, the Supreme Person, is instructing Arjuna on the battlefield of Kurukshetra. He's instructing him that you act you must act. Arjuna is perplexed. He doesn't know what to do. Act. And he says, just whatever you do, act with all of your energy for me. And whether you win or lose, doesn't matter. I will protect you. This is what the message Prabhupada gave us. Uh, the key to action. And every day he told us, every day he told us, you must help me change the world. Wow, okay. He was our pirate chief. Huh? He said that if we risked like this, and he was the perfect example of it, he had risked everything as an old man. He had left everything behind. No money, no plan, no friends in America. He came here to give us this message. So he was the living example of risk and action. And he told us that if we risk like this, we get to get see Krishna faster. Because Krishna has to personally interfere in our risky activity. He has to remove obstacles for us. He has to. He promised he would. Let's see if he does it. <laughs> so I have to say, frankly, I never thought anything was impossible with Prabhupada. It never came to that idea, oh, Prabhupada, that's impossible. Never even crossed our minds in those days. This Prabhupada told us that destiny, individual destiny, collective destiny, movements of history, all of this is Krishna's plan anyway, his arrangement. And you, you just open your eyes and you can see it all. And Krishna's in everything, in every display of reality, it's all Krishna. So just go for it. Krishna will help you. He told us that. So I never felt anything was impossible. And we have, of course, we still do. We all have spiritual anxiety. It goes with the, it goes with the activity of 
Krishna consciousness, spiritual anxiety. And it's okay. Spiritual anxiety tests our progress and our convictions. But I've seen it now grow from Krishna consciousness from a tiny seed up to a really strong young tree now. So when it grow like that and become a mighty oak, the tree has to struggle. A few weeks ago, I called Radhanath Swami on the phone. We were talking, and I said, I was describing some of the problems I was having. And I, I described them as bumps in the road. Oh, I'm having some bumps in the road. He said, he's paused, and then he said, you know, there are these bumps in the road are really just Krishna's caresses. <laughs> and then he said, Krishna loves drama. And I thought, ah, yes, he does. <laughs> but my guiding principle through all of this, to answer your question, is I'm always looking for mystic experiences. I'm always looking to see Krishna's hand in something, all signs you might call them. I rely on those. And I think when they don't happen, I become very distraught. And I think if you open your senses, and Krishna always sends something. If you open your senses, you always can see Krishna helping you. Mystic experiences. One example, when I was writing these books, that I remember clearly as being a mystic experience, uh, I was deep in research, and there was one BBC interview with George Harrison that I remembered from those days that I really wanted to put in my book, my first volume. It was very critical to the rest of the book, and I couldn't find it. I had ordered maybe a dozen or two dozen books about the flower age, the flower children, uh, the Beatles, all this stuff, that era, I put them on my bookshelf. And I looked for days, I couldn't find that interview with George. So I went to bed in great anxiety. I can't go forward in this book until I find that. And that morning, about five in the morning, my bed shook. It was an earthquake. In Los Angeles, you expect that, so you just... <laughs> Let it go. I heard some things falling in the living room. That was it. I went back to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> I got up in the morning and went out to make breakfast. And I looked over. About ten books had fallen out of the bookshelf. And as I walked by to the kitchen, I looked down and there was that interview <laughs> in an open book, just like that. <laughs> Christian. Even recently, recent example. Last week. I was down in High Holborn outside my hotel room waiting for a car, some devotee to come and pick me up in his car. We, we were late for our appointment. And I was in great anxiety, following his progress on my iPhone above. And, and I, I could feel my heart pounding. <laughs> I thought, Krishna, how much longer are you going to keep me in anxiety like this all the time? And just then, 10 feet away on the street, this bicycle came by, and this, there was a guy, a devotee hanging off the bicycle, and he went, Hare Krishna, and drove on up the street. <laughs> he was pulling that cart that said, Food for Life. 
Thanks, Krishna, I needed that. <laughs> Even this morning, uh, when I sat down to prepare notes for his question, I thought, Krishna, what am I going to say to these young people? I don't know what to say. I was in a moment of deep anxiety. Suddenly there was a knock at my door, and there was a devotee there handing me a piece of cake. <laughs> oh, God, thanks, Krishna. The rest was easy. <laughs> <laughs> so Krishna consciousness means a life based on magic. It's mystical. We have mis we're mystics. We have a mystical lifestyle. We take this risk to spread Krishna consciousness. Krishna personally interferes. And then the magic formula of, to all of this, the simplest cure for any anxiety, is always the Maha Mantra. You have your bead bag with you. Whenever you feel any anxiety whatsoever, this is impossible. You just sit down and chant one round, and it works every time. Mm -hmm. We have the answer to all problems. <laughs> I'm just going to take a slight detour, I hope you don't mind, but it sparked uh, a point in my mind as you're speaking, and I've noticed, and as I'm reading your book, there's uh, a phrase that I see popping up now and again, and it's hustling for Krishna, this word hustling, you've got quite a few North West London gangsters in the room here, who, they use this word hustling a lot, trying to take over the world, and I just read, I just read this very short paragraph here, so uh, this is from Mother Janaki, and she says, Mukundu would be gone and then come home and say, this is what's going to happen. And then with Shamasunda, the two of them, it just manifested in the larger scope. We're going to get a temple. And then all of a sudden, 518 Frederick Street turns up. Whatever those guys wanted to do, they would find a way for it to happen. I don't know what they did out there, but they hustled. And their hustle was so authentic that people were willing to go for it and listen to them. So this principle of just doing the impossible, I just wanted to know, just off the top of your head, what's the biggest hustle you've done for Krishna? <laughs> People are always asking me, to, what's the one single example of this or that? Uh, I mean, everything we did was, was a magical... Uh, Krishna interfered in a magical way to make everything happen. You know, there were so many. You can't ask me for any one that was more than any other. Well, we came to London. We met the Beatles. We, we had a temple built, an altar built. Prabhupada gave us the uh, deadline of two weeks, and we had no deities to put up. Boy, that was a hustle. Krishna <laughs> had to appear. Radhanonashwar came out of nowhere, got installed right on time. So just example after example. I can't point to any one perfect example, but Krishna consciousness, my life in Krishna consciousness has been a stream of hustle <laughs> and magic. <laughs> so let's talk a bit about being with Prabhupada. So um, you had a very unique relationship with Prabhupada, and, and in your book you write that being with Prabhupada was like being in an endless movie. Um, and for all of us, second and third generation, we're very lucky. We have Prabhupada's books, we have his tapes, we have his kirtans, we have his archivigraha. And I guess we're even more blessed because we have Yodhubara's tapes and Vishaka Prabhu's photos and Gurudas Prabhu's. But there's so much out there. But still, we were never with him like you were. 
So could you shed a bit of light what it was like being around Srila Prabhupada? Well, uh, <clears throat> I'm always a little confused when people say uh, we, we don't know what it was like uh, with Prabhupada. We can't feel what it was like with Prabhupada. Separating, as if to separate then from now. Srila Prabhupada is here. He's right here all the time. Now as much as he was then. He's always here. You know, his murti, his words, his recorded lectures, like you said, his disciples, his new gurus, I mean, his sannyasis. Uh, your own spiritual masters are here, so Prabhupada's here too. He's not, he didn't go anywhere. <laughs> Radha Swami, Bhakticharu, Shivaram, Giriraj, Interjumna, all these guys. These are Prabhupada's, they're walking in Prabhupada's footsteps. They're close to Prabhupada. So there's no, uh, I don't, I, I can't quite understand it when you guys say, well, what was it like then? Because he's still here and still the same. <laughs> you just have to dig down a little and become a little more mystical about it all. You'll feel it. Reach out there, Prabhupada is here. He's right here in this room. He's with you all the time. Now, Prabhupada himself didn't spend much time with his spiritual master. Very few uh, moments, really. But he understood him completely. He had a mystical bond with his spiritual master. He let, he let him enter his soul and his consciousness. And that's required. Your question. Yeah, question. But could you speak a bit about Prabhupada's? I mean, you mentioned the Swami's physical beauty in the book, and you know, some people say that Prabhupada was floating, or that you know, when Prabhupada looked into their eyes, he was looking into their soul. Or some I've heard said there was a halo around Prabhupada's head. So, what was your experience, that that personal physical experience, and things like what did Prabhupada smell like? We know what he looked like, but what did he smell like? Flowers and incense, and he was cold around it. There was nowhere around his body as you approached that, it, that envelope. It got cooler and cooler. <laughs> I'll read something. Now, you read something. <laughs> <laughs> Bhaktivedanta Swami is the most attractive person I've ever seen, and this guy only works for Krishna. He's a messenger. <laughs> How beautiful Krishna must be. The Swami's physical beauty seems ever fresh and energetic, fueled by transcendental energy like the fluid grace you see in youth. The Swami's eyes, his large mouth, his facial expressions all play together with everything he says. He would break mid-sentence, a dramatic pause. Uh, like returning to the tambura drone in an Indian raga. He seems to know everything, and I can't take my ears away. And then here's another aspect of Srila Prabhupada's physical beauty. Right off, the things I like best, one of the things I like best about the Swami, he made you laugh. He was always calm and content, sure, but more than that, he was jolly. 
Even discussing very serious subjects, there was often the play of a smile around his lips, a chuckle to make a point, chuckle by chuckle building our inner glee. Then suddenly the guffaw, the quick delight. And when he's really surprised by the overtly absurd, a fully rounded belly laugh trembles his body, tears streaming from his tight squinted eyes. This was Prabhupada. He was so much fun to be with. I mean, we took ch risks chasing the rhino, but we had fun doing it. That's the key. But it wasn't just his face. It was his total physical grace. Everything he did, every movement he made, seemed to be without any error. Uh, I'm, I'm getting pretty old now, so I, I find myself analyzing myself more and more, self-analysis. And I've realized that from the moment I wake up in the morning, I make mistakes. I drop something, I spill something, I forget something. All day long, my life is just one connected mistake. <laughs> But Prabhupada never saw in all the years I was closely watching him make any kind of mistake. There's a, one example. One day he was walking in the Russell Square Park. He finished his morning walk. It was cold, drizzly day in London. He came into the very place temple and uh, had his overcoat and he had mittens on his hands. And he took them off and put it in his pocket and started up the stairs. And as he went up the stairs, one of the mittens fell out on the stairway. Janicki picked it up and she said, Swamiji, you dropped your mitten. And he looked down and he had this most benign smile and look on his face. Gurdas took a picture of it. You can see this smile. He says, oh, I have made a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> He just wanted to have that little rasa with Janaki. So I have to conclude that, that because he was so graceful in everything he did, that he must have been fully conscious of everything he did. I know of myself, if I pick a pen up and I'm conscious of doing it, I put my consciousness in, I can do it properly. So Prabhupada must have had total consciousness, total consciousness of every move that he made because he, he turned himself over to Krishna. Krishna, I'm not the doer of anything. Krishna is. He just, uh, this made, made Sri Prabhupada very beautiful, mm -hmm. just to watch. So just as we're on the subject of Prabhupada, before we move on, one of the wonderful rasas that you had with Prabhupada was debating with him where he would, he would make you enact uh, a famous philosopher, Plato or Aristotle, and he'd want to smash those arguments. And that was a very special relationship that you had because you did that quite over the years, right? It wasn't in one stagnant um, experience. It was through many years. So I have, um, it's a very short um, dialogue here, the dialogue that you had with Prabhupada. And so just so everybody can maybe experience that, I thought maybe we'd read through that. To, to see how okay. Prabhupada answered your... <laughs> Sorry, was that Shangabhapuru? Yes, right. Well, the backstory for this philosophy stuff started right here in London. When Prabhupada visited here in 1971, 
uh, September, August, September, 1971, six weeks. He uh, he liked to come to London for that. One of the main reasons he liked to come to Britain was to engage in discussions, conversations with intelligent people. He liked that about Britain, that he could talk here on a higher level than anywhere else. And one day, uh, just, does everyone know what the Mensa Society is? Mensa? Mensa Society means you have to have 200 plus IQ to be a member. All these brainiacs. So one day the president of the British Mensa Society and the secretary came to visit Prabhupada at Berry Place. I recorded the conversation. It was so amazing. It's in the second volume, this important parts of this conversation, where Prabhupada, they presented all of their arguments. And Prabhupada defeated them point by point using only their type of logic and an analogies, scriptural evidence, authority, even using British poets and philosophers as examples. And it was so marvelously done. By the time they left, they were defeated and they loved it. <laughs> they were a total happiness and awe of the Swami. So that night, Prabhupada asked me, he says, you studied philosophy in college, right? I said, yeah, I, I majored in German philosophy, but I still couldn't you know, find the answers to anything. And he said, okay, he said, but from now on at 8 o'clock in the morning, every day, you will come to me, and you will be the Western philosopher. Oh, I boned up. I found a, um, a copy of uh, summaries of Western philosophers, and I started out with, Plato. Was it Plato or Aristotle? One of those two, the early Greeks. And that began a nine-month uh, period where I, every day I presented the philosophy as a Western philosopher. I was that philosopher. Prabhupada debated me, and he defeated me every day. Every day he defeated me. <laughs> and I got very into it. I was that philosopher. <laughs> but we descended from apes, you know. Prabhupada get angry with me, <laughs> defeat me every time. So what uh, Radha Damodar has handed me is from, this is this from is the Augustine. Book. Yeah, this yeah. is the Augustine. Saint Augustine. Okay. Oh boy, that's a good one. Saint Augustine. Prabhupada had more or less agreed with most of the philosophers that we had presented up to this point, the Greeks and the early Christian uh, philosophers, uh, because they still believed. believed Believe it or not, the early Christian philosophers presented had believed in reincarnation. They believed in many of the things that we do. And Prabhupada was more or less happy that they had come to their conclusions by mental speculation, that they didn't have this wonderful sampradaya that we have, the authority. But when we got to St. Augustine, that, that was the icing on the cake. I think he was about 400 A.D., and he went. He, his philosophy, St. Augustine's philosophy, uh, became the basis of the Christian church for a thousand, two thousand years after that. Mm. So, do you want to play Shamsundra? Okay. Oh, I think you missed something here. Uh, he's. Oh, okay. We can do the prelude. Yeah. He said, uh, he's, uh, St. Augustine says that the soul is not eternal, but it becomes eternal when you are born. 
us. And Prabhupada says, if the soul is created, how is it immortal? How can the soul sometimes not be eternal? Augustine claims that after this one lifetime, you go either to heaven or to hell, eternal salvation or eternal damnation. No. Spiritual consciousness can be revived at any moment. Augustine says, God is not the soul in all things, but the maker of all souls. Then how is God all-pervading? Certainly God has a potency of omnipresence. This cannot be denied. According to Augustine, mind, reason, and the soul are one and the same. No. The mind and intelligence differ according to the body, but the soul remains the same. Augustine says, let these Platonists stop threatening us with reincarnation as punishment for our souls. Reincarnation is ridiculous. And it says the Prabhupada becomes furious. <laughs> Maybe you should do that line. No. Become furious. <laughs> no! Reincarnation is scientific fact. Augustine says, we do not apply thou shalt not kill to plants nor irrational animals that fly, swim, walk, or creep. By the Creator's wise ordinance, they are meant for our use, dead or alive. These men, exclamation mark, there is no clear philosophy in the Bible, so they make up anything using big words, and even every rascal follows. The Bible says, thou shalt not kill without qualification. I'm beginning to see through Prabhupada's eyes how vast civilizations rise and fall in the philosophy of one man, and how important it is, once having found the true philosophy, to propagate that truth in a rational manner to all humankind. Thank you. Thank you. So it really, yeah, it really gave a, a wonderful insight into what it was like to be there with you, with you and Shiva Prabhupada. All, all of these philosophers are in this second volume. The important parts of each one. So we, we can maybe speak a little bit about expansion. In the 60s you joined a very small, close-knit family. Prabhupada was sometimes, he'd cook for you, he'd clean for you. And then within quite a relatively small amount of time, this small family field grew into a, a huge global, global organization. So how did that make you feel and did Prabhupada ever lose his personal touch with you? Well, we loved this global expansion because it was, uh, it was the realization of our spiritual master's <coughs> dream, seeing all of these things happen so quickly in, in such a huge way. More the better, bring it on. Uh, one of the things that fueled this rapid expansion was called, what we can call it, uh, transcendental competition between God brothers and God sisters. We each tried to outdo our mates. Uh, my, 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 my service is going to be bigger than yours because that way we would attract Prabhupada's attention. You know, naturally, if you do something huge, he's, get, he's going to be watching you. So th this kind of transcendental competition, although it was competition, the conflicts between us that should arise from competition were easily resolved uh, in the Prabhupada's happiness. If Prabhupada was happy, we were happy. So uh, Prabhupada's relationships with 
Each one of his devotees was individual. It was one-on-one. -on -one. Even though our family grew from a few people to thousands, it seemed like each one of those disciples had a personal relationship with Prabhupada. It was one-on-one. -on -one. Now, I often pondered, I've been pondering all my life about the idea that how could Krishna, how could Krishna pay any attention to me, even though I exist, out of these trillions, untold trillions of living entities in his creation? How could he know that I exist in all of this? But then you have to answer, this was Prabhupada's answer, he said, if someone loves you and slaves for you and you're aware of that you're, you have to become aware of that I mean, even as a person you know this everyone knows this intuitively if someone really loves me and works so hard for me day and night I pay attention to it that's natural isn't it so I remark that person and in this spirit each one of the devotees felt like Prabhupada knew them and was paying attention to them because they were working so hard for him. And they loved him so much. Everyone thought that they were special to Prabhupada. Prabhupada wrote letters. I mean, usually, say, a dozen a day, sometimes 20, 30 letters a day, in replies to individual devotees' letters. So every, every devotee had letters coming from and it was their whole life, this letter. Whatever it told them to do, until the next letter came, that's what they did. Everyone had access to, to Sri Prabhupada. Uh, and when you hear today old devotees speak, like Sarvamangala or anybody, they will tell you certain things that they had going with Prabhupada <laughs> to make them feel special. No matter how small and insignificant, it was very special to them. And that was their personal rocket ship to Krishna. What was your second question? Did, did the Prabhupada, Prabhupada ever lose his... Oh, yeah. Did Prabhupada ever lose his personal touch with you? No! No, he never did. I'm, and I'm such a rascal. <laughs> I could never have become entered Krishna consciousness or made any progress in Krishna consciousness without that personal association. I mean, unlike you guys, you know, you're so strong compared to what I, what I am. You're very far away from Srila Prabhupada. And still you follow him and follow his words. I, I have seven years of almost daily personal contact with Sri Prabhupada it was, it was barely enough to rope me in. Yeah. And I think now that so much time has passed, we understand more about destiny. You know, how, how we struggle, have struggled birth after birth to reach this point, to reach Krishna. Uh, but don't be satisfied now that you're at this point. Don't let karma slow it down. Srila Prabhupada often said that Krishna will re personally reach down and change your destiny. 
Destiny is written in the laws of karma, but only Krishna can reach in there and change that destiny. He's the only one who can. So I was very fortunate. I was and I am still very fortunate because Prabhupada is around me so much. And, but I most admire you, you guys, the other devotees, uh, for being in so strong in Krishna consciousness without that personal constant personal association, and you're my heroes, really are. But yes, Prabhupada is still with me, always. He never lets me go. Six years ago when I sat down to start writing these books, I wrote for three years, three years, every day. And it was the most wonderful time of my life because of living with Prabhupada again. And in a daily, he was next to me in the chair, was guiding my hand. We had so much fun, even dreams. At night, he would, I would dream what I should write the next day. Mm. Mm. These are not my words in these books. And Srila Prabhupada often mentioned that when he was writing his books and translating, he would say, and as some of his purports you can read, that uh, I didn't write these words. That the, the devotee who writes about Krishna, the glories of Krishna, uh, Krishna does the writing. Mm. Even this morning, uh, I was asking Srila Prabhupada to help me. Okay, this is what you should say. So I wrote that. <laughs> so I'm having fun always with Srila Prabhupada, speaking with you guys. And he's here too. He's laughing with us. So we have some wonderful photos of Prabhupada that are from your book. And um, very rarely do we get to be with somebody who's there when you know in either in the photos or taking the photos. We thought we'd go through it's just oh. two or that. Prabhupada this is a Kumbh Mela in nineteen seventy one, early seventy one. And does everyone know what Kumbh Mela is? Kumbh Mela is a, a, a twelve, every 12 years in, at the confluence of the Ganges and Jamuna rivers near Allahabad, they have Kumbh Mela. It's a giant, it's the world's largest spiritual gathering, has been for thousands of years. And several million people gather here, pilgrims, spirit, seeking spiritual uh, abs absolution. They, they bathe in the waters and so on. But Prabhupada brought us, 20 Westerners, to Kumbh Mela that year, 1971. And the, we set up a Pandal program right in the middle of millions of other camps. And for a month, we lived in the outside like this, with, uh, in, in a camp, in sleeping bags, in the sand, in the winter, uh, with none of, we were, Westerners used to living in a whole different way of life. So this was uh, not only difficult for us, but somehow, uh, somehow or other, with Prabhupada being in our midst, everything seemed to work all right. We got this thing going, and Prabhupada and his dancing white elephants were the hit of Kumbh Mela. We would do Samkirtan from dawn until dusk through these giant encampments of thousands of people. And, it was spectacular. People could, could hardly believe what they were seeing. 
This was the beginning of Prabhupada reintroducing, reviving Krishna consciousness in his home country where, where it had almost gone extinct. So early in the morning, Prabhupada, we all lived together in, a, in tents. Prabhupada is shaving himself with a little mirror and his Gillette razor. <laughs> did, it, did it ever surprise you that Prabhupada did these sorts of things for himself? You know, sometimes you kind of idolize, you think, no, he doesn't do normal things, but Prabhupada shaving himself and... He became totally independent in his life before meeting us. He was totally independent. He, was, he could live by himself anywhere. He didn't need all of us. Um, he gave us service, but uh, he only did that out of his mercy. He could do everything by himself. And in fact, in India, he did everything. He told us how to act, what to eat, where, how to do every, perform every task in India, because we didn't know how to do anything. And he did every negotiation. He taught us how to bargain. He taught us how to do every matter. He was the commander in chief of his army in India. Mm -hmm. Wonderful experience. Mm. Ah. <laughs> this is at the cornerstone laying ceremony in Juhu. Another example of Prabhupada's masterful ability to do everything. It was an impossible task to try to get big properties in India with no money. We had no money. <laughs> Somehow or other, the whole story is in this book, in my second volume. Prabhupada got five acres right in the best part of Bombay. Of course, we objected a little bit. We said, Prabhupada, it's too far away from Bombay out here. It was like six miles from Bombay up. We called it the wilderness. Now Jew is the center of Bombay, so he, he could see ahead. But he got five acres, a very low price in the middle of all that. And this is the day he's teaching us how to install uh, the cornerstone. Uh, we had to put seven kinds of grain, seven kinds of items, I think, in the pit. Uh, grains, color dyes, foods, and all kinds of items, jewels. And he's directing it one by one. I've got it in my hands. We couldn't find any grains, so I got a box of animal crackers. Yeah, that's me down there with a box of it. And I'm asking, and he's telling me, no, just two or three, not the whole box. <laughs> Ah, the negotiator. This is in Japan, Tokyo, Japan. You know, it's, it's, you have to ask yourself how strange this is. That we had just defeated these people in the Second World War. And, and, uh, and when I was grew, grew up as a child, the Japanese were our enemies. <laughs> now here they are running the world's largest printing company. And they're printing all of Prabhupada's books <laughs> and his <laughs> Back to Godhead magazines. And we're on our way, at, uh, in our um, Prabhupada's journey around the world, we stop in Tokyo so Prabhupada can negotiate uh, with the leaders of Dainipan Corporation, this giant skyscraper in the, in the heart of Tokyo. He's making the best deal you could possibly imagine for those books. He's got them enthralled. He, his, his bargaining power was amazing. 
you would think he was going one direction and suddenly he'd come in. <laughs> of course, we are, we are very humbly begging you. We, are, we make no profit from this. Uh, we are simply trying to uh, spread love of God around the world, things like that. It's just, so uh, and by this time, after he nails down the price, which is below what anybody could imagine, they start asking him spiritual questions. Uh, this guy, the head guy's son, had been killed in an auto accident. Now, they, the Japanese were very spiritual in a way. They, they practiced kind of a Shintoism and Buddhism mix, animism. Uh, so he was trying, from his standpoint, to understand his son's death. So Prabhupada told him the story uh, how Krishna goes down and brings back this, the sons of his guru, Sandipani's sons, or something like that. One of those stories where Krishna delivers his sons back from, from Yamaraj. Mm. Next. Oh, this is in Moscow. You can't imagine what it was like. I don't think there's anybody in this room old enough. Maybe Sarva, if somebody remembers. But the world used to be divided into two warring factions. The communist camp and the capitalist camp, led by America and the West, and Russia and the East. And there was an iron curtain dividing this. And one side was going to drop the hydrogen bomb on the other any moment. It was a very dangerous time, 1970. Brezhnev was the dictator of Russia. It was impossible to go to Russia. You couldn't go to Russia if you were a Westerner. The Prabhupada had been saying for years, you know, these Russian people, they, they need Krishna consciousness more than anyone. They're, they're so firmly entrapped by Maya. I want to go there. <laughs> and over and over, devotees tried and tried and tried couldn't get him in there. Finally, somehow or other, I got a, a visa for us to go there for five days. I call it, in, the, in my book, Five Days to Change the World. Just to make a long story short, Prabhupada, we found this one boy, Russian boy. I brought him to Prabhupada, and in three days, Prabhupada made him a pure devotee. Three days. This boy knew nothing of Krishna. But in three days, he was a pure devotee. Prabhupada's mystic power. Anyway, this picture was taken. One of the mornings, we would walk in Red Square. And after one or two days of walking in Red Square, Prabhupada said, I want to see these underground uh, subways. And so we went down in the, the, the subway stop down there, walked around. Prabhupada was really a... He admired the, the beauty, the beautiful cleanliness and open spaces of their subways. And as this, see this guy on, uh, behind me there uh, with the suit, he's turning his head. Mm -hmm. It's a blue suit. Everywhere I went for days, this guy was, I, I turned around, I could see him somewhere. <laughs> he had different colored suits on. He tried to be anonymous, but I knew he was a KGB guy. And I'm saying to Prabhupada over his shoulder there, Prabhupada, you see that? Don't look, but you see that guy in the blue suit? Uh, yeah. He's been following me for days. Prabhupada just said, yes, we are very dangerous persons. <laughs> this is a philosophy discussion. 
just like that St. Augustine thing. Every day for nine months. I, this is in Calcutta, so I'm probably talking about Karl Marx. <coughs> we discussed Karl Marx, uh, Lenin, and Mao Zedong in that week in Calcutta, which was the perfect place to do it because in those days Calcutta was uh, in turmoil with communist agitation. Everywhere you looked in Calcutta in those days, the hammer and sickles, signatures everywhere. Ah, this is Prabhupada entering Delhi, the Pandal Delhi in November 1971, 10-day Pandal, Connaught Circus, and the guy holding the garland is one of Prabhupada's old acquaintances in Delhi, who is now the mayor of Delhi. Lalji, he called it. So that was a triumphant return for Prabhupada. When he left Delhi, he had a few books that he had worked so hard to get printed. He was penniless, had no friends except this guy and a few others. Uh, now he's returning to, let's see, 1965. Six years later, he's returning. Spirit, uh, India's foremost spiritual ambassador. Ah, then he took us down to Del uh, to Vrindavan after the Delhi Pandal. He's showing his Westerners, Western devotees, the land of Krishna. We'd all been waiting to see Vrindavan ever since we met Prabhupada. Now he's showing us the magic of Vrindavan. And this is down on the Jamuna, of course, at I believe at Keshigat. And uh, we're all swimming. The Prabhupada says, I want to go too. <laughs> he took his clothes off and came in with us. <laughs> That's Garden Mooney. <coughs> ah, this is on the beach in Vishakhapatnam. We used to walk there every morning. And I believe I had just mentioned to Prabhupada some political thing. I think it was Nixon was... I, I, Prabhupada, I like to keep up with the news so I could uh, keep Prabhupada kind of up to date what was going on in the world. He liked to know what was going on everywhere. So I would tell him, give, give him news flashes. And I, I told him that Nixon was about to go to China and open the door to China. And Prabhupada made some comment about how politicians are come and go and they're more, no more troublesome than the pebble in a shoe. <laughs> So I think we're running short on time now. Okay. So we'll get back to just maybe the final question, which is regarding, uh, you know, thinking big or going deep. There was there was a big focus on preaching, opening temples, doing the impossible. But now, 50 years later, we hear a lot more about going deeper, focusing on the sadhana. So how do we maintain that balance, tracing the rhinos whilst also being internally Krishna conscious? Well, uh, when I was here last time, I think it was just exactly two years ago. I saw, you know, the, the seeds and the dreams uh, of, your, and your, of your intelligent plans to spread Krishna consciousness. Now, I've been here a month touring this time, and I'm seeing the wonderful fruits hanging from the trees, heavy on the trees of your hard labors. And I'm thinking, Think, it's a good question, but thinking big 
is not separate from going deep. They're the same thing. Uh, risk and big action is going deep. Krishna consciousness will, be, will come automatically to you by acting big, chasing the rhino. Srila Prabhupada is the perfect example of this, as we've said over and over. I mean, you have the knowledge, you have all the knowledge, Bhagavad Gita, Srimad Bhagavatam, all of Prabhupada's books. You know everything already, so you have that knowledge. You know everything, right? The devotees know everything. So then you need to act on this knowledge. You know, act big. When Krishna uh, says to Arjuna, just do it, do it for me, win or lose, it doesn't matter. I will protect you. By, by doing this, acting big in this, this way, I think you're feeling it too. You're feeling how Krishna conscious you're becoming by uh, these big activities. But you know, this acting big, uh, Prabhupada was the example of that, but he was also very practical. For example, when we asked him, we proposed to him, can we go to the UK and start a temple? Great Britain, can we start a temple there? He says, yes, but how much money do you have? Practical. Uh, and when I first, my first meeting, personal meeting with Prabhupada, uh, he asked me, the first question he asked me was, do you know bookkeeping? There's the practical. Going deep is practical. So you combine your biggest visions with practical plans. But be open to the science and mystic experience. This will fix you faster than anything. And I'm very optimistic. I'm very optimistic. You know, now that Srila Prabhupada has planted the seeds of absolute truth in the world, you guys have watered it and built it into this strong, thriving oak tree. It must prevail now and expand. Uh, not, and the expansion is not just geometric like that. It's exponential like that. <laughs> Prabhupada always said he doesn't want millions of stars. He just wants one moon. And now you are many. You are so many. You have tools we couldn't even imagine. So we have to think things like, why are so many hundreds of devotees packed into that small temple in Soho? Why don't we have a big skyscraper? Why aren't there billboards on the motorways that say, chant Hare Krishna and be happy? Why aren't there neon signs floating over London that Hare Krishna. There's still a lot to do. There's still a lot to do. We've done so much. I mean, this, I, the other day I visited that, is it Om Nom? Om Nom restaurant? The last time I was here two years ago, that was just an idea. Now it's a reality. Soon to open in Islington. And Jay Shetty, <laughs> your, your alumnus, is now a household word in America on the YouTube by the YouTube people. 
Kapila and Sandipani Muni and Rasabihari and Janavi and, and uh, Ananda Monet, they're emerging impacts into show business and spreading Krishna consciousness, the holy name, through the media around the globe. It's wonderful. The Facebook pages you guys are putting out. The videos Radha Damodar is making. On and on. Tomorrow, I just found out today, that tomorrow Boris Johnson is visiting Bhaktivedanta Manor, the prime minister. <laughs> you weren't supposed to say that. <laughs> <laughs> so, great achievements. But the challenge is still there. Why is Krishna consciousness bigger in the world? So it's up to you. Please make it bigger. <laughs> we could go on for hours and hours yeah. and hours, and there are so many more photos we could go through, but sadly we have a time limit. So, so grateful and thankful your time this evening and quite often we express our gratitude to seniors and saying if it wasn't for you I wouldn't be here but literally in your case if it wasn't for you none of us would be here and that's such a wonderful thing so I think on behalf of everybody please let's offer our gratitude to Shamsuna Prabhu the three very loud Hari Bowls. I should mention too that my books are available here tonight after the Please don't, please don't let me take any books back with me. <laughs> it's almost Christmas time. Get as many as you can for your friends. I must tell you that the any the income from the sales of this second volume will go directly into printing volume three, which you're going to love. That's the next one. It's already written; just needs to be produced, and that will be that will cover uh, Bhaktivedanta Manor, how it all happened. And three months of Prabhupada's visit in 19, summer of 73 in Bhaktivedanta Manor will be the main subject matter in volume three. So please help me get that, make that happen. Yes. Thank you. So uh, I was thinking while you were speaking today, Peter Jayanti, the day when we remember that Krishna how he explained to Arjuna why he should fight. And today, Shamsuna Prabhu has explained to us why we should hustle. <laughs> so uh, keeping in line with uh, spiritual teachers, we thank you very much for uh, inspiring us to increase and improve our hustling for Krishna. Uh, we're going to take three more questions from the audience. So if anyone has any questions, I'll put my hand up first. Uh, question. Thank you.
and uh, we were just going past the microbiotic restaurant, and somehow Krishna arranged that I looked over because that's where I used to go, and there you were on the street. And I think that was really Krishna energy. Uh, I remember that. Couldn't <laughs> tell them that you was hysterical. <laughs> you were in a deep anxiety about something. Yes, on that trip. We comforted you and brought you back to the temple, didn't we? Yeah, I asked you. I said I, I always wanted to go, um, and you took me then. We found you refuge. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're you're still was, here. But that Krishna magic, you know, this, you know, how come when you're driving past that place and you were just walking past and I just turned my head and yeah. that's Krishna magic. Basic experience. Uh, thank you for bringing that. <laughs> my question for you is, which hustle for Prabhupada do you regret missing out on? Regret? Yeah. So that you've seen happen that you've missed out on and uh, you, you would love to have been part of. Ah, I don't see things that way. <laughs> In Krishna consciousness, there are no regrets. Every destiny moves on, history moves on, things move on, and Krishna's plan. I don't regret this. I'm not sure I understand your question completely, but I, I don't really have any regrets about it. Anything. Any loss of time. I guess I have two questions. One is. Um, I feel like we don't have as much spiritual competition as we did back then. Is that something we should be fostering? Well, um, you're not American. It's <laughs> 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 part of your culture to be nicer to people. <laughs> That's one of the wonders of Britain, your manners and your po politeness. So, I mean, competition is there in all species, human species, animal species. We always try to outdo the other person under certain circumstances, but I, you know, I, I don't. I shouldn't encourage, encourage, comp, you know, fostering competition as a new thing for you if it's not natural to you. <laughs> but it's always kind of uh, it's part of our ego, isn't it? That I want to do something better than he does. Prabhupada got a hold of a bunch of young Americans who were born and raised under this kind of heavy competition. That's what helped him push this rocket ship to the moon. Um, it's, it's okay, competition. Transcendental competition is good. Uh, but I want to outshine my god brothers in a certain way because, but it's really between you and your spiritual master. If you want his attention more, you know how to get it. <laughs> That's what it is. It's between you and your spiritual master, the competition. You want to attract his attention as much as you can. And when you do something big, you get it. <laughs> my second question was, um, <coughs> back then, it was, everyone was surrendered to Prabhupada. Papa would just instruct people to do things. Go do this, go do that. 
the, the culture is very different now. We don't interact with our spiritual masters in the same way. We're not living in the temple, so the relationship with the, the temple president, the temple president is not directing us to go do this, do that. So you don't have that pointedness that comes with direct instruction. There's almost a reluctance because of the history to give direct instruction. Do you, do you think that's an issue for us? And how can we, how can we compensate for that? I don't think you need to have in, uh, orders from your spiritual master. It's between you and Krishna. Whatever you think might really work to help spread his name. You make your deal with him personally. You don't need somebody to tell you what to do. And wait for the magic. Yeah. <laughs> Make it up your if Chaita Guru is inside of you, you look at within, you know, that, that's what I was saying about going deep is, is, is you look for the mystic, mystical in life. We you are present you are all mystics. Yeah, Krishna consciousness. Be more mystic about it. Look inside, find what you're supposed to do. Chaita Guru will tell you. <laughs> and uh, uh, if we can also get a round of applause, Raja Damodar gave a very, very nice interview. In particular, I liked uh, the explanation of the windows to these pictures. That was a very nice touch. Oh, thank you. Uh, now we'll have some kirtan. Probably you wanted to do. I'll set up right here. Okay. So, Ramanga, would you like to chant for 10 minutes? Would you like to chant? There's 180 of these photos on the second volume. So then we'll have Nilamat. Radhikaranjan. Radhikaranjan. So, come forward and sing. If everyone can scoop onto the mat more so everyone who's not sitting on the mat is cold there, so that the ladies can come on as well. So, all the boys move this way, please. And then uh, at 7.30, Sham uh, Prabhu will be signing his books in this area. Uh, how much are the books? Probably?